Well, good morning, New Day. What a great day to be at church, huh? Oh, baptism Sundays are the best. Absolute the best. Praise God. Well, thank you for being with us today. I'm so glad that you're here, uh, not just for Baptism Sunday, uh, but for the continuation of our series and our study through Matthew's Gospel. Our text today is Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 to 19, and our theme this week is a contrary generation, a contrary generation. That's who Jesus addresses in our text today, a contrary generation. I remember some years back, I was sharing my faith with someone close to me uh, to protect the identity of the innocent. We'll call this person Nate, although that's not his name. And uh, long story short, no matter what I said to Nate, no matter how well I answered his questions, every single thing I said was met with a yeah, but, or just summarily dismissed and replaced with a new question. No matter how many barriers to faith that I tore down, uh, Nate kept erecting new ones in its place. And it was so frustrating to me because I initially was under the impression that if I just explained things good enough, Nate would believe. But I came to realize from that experience that far from looking for reasons to believe, Nate was actually looking for reasons not to believe. I had naively assumed that everyone was actually interested in learning truth. Uh, but again, from that experience, what I learned is that some people, no, they, they don't have interest in truth. Some people have zero interest in truth because of the obligations and the responsibilities that acceptance of the truth would place upon them. In other words, if God's real, then we are obligated uh, to him. If we accept Jesus as Lord, then life becomes about fulfilling his will, not our own, and about building his kingdom, not ours, and about living as he says we ought to live uh, versus living just however we might want. And for many people, that's the last thing they want because they prefer sin to righteousness. And that's what it was like with my friend, Nate. I think of it like this. I really enjoy the TV series, Monk. Uh, not watching it now, but years past, just really enjoyed that show. And in the episode, Mr. Monk gets jury duty. There's this one woman uh, on the panel who's just contrary. And she reminds me of Nate and others like him. This woman is trying to stall the proceeding, so no matter what the jury votes, she just votes the opposite. In the first scene, everyone on the jury votes guilty, so she says, my vote is not guilty. In the second scene, the jury had a change of heart in light of new evidence, so they all change their vote, and now they vote not guilty, so she changes her vote from not guilty to guilty. By the third scene, the jury suspects that she's just determined to disagree no matter what. So when she goes to the bathroom, they come up with a plan to test their theory. And when she comes back, they all say, well, you know what? Uh, we decided we actually agree with you. You were right. The defendant is guilty. To which she responds, well, when I was in the restroom, I changed my mind again. I vote not guilty. Friends, that's just how some people are contrary no matter what. 
And I mention this because this is what we're going to see in our passage today, a contrary generation, a a generation of people who are just determined to dismiss and ignore and deny the truth no matter what. Now, I'm going to read you our text in just a minute, but before I do today, it's really important that we first set the scene, because in our text, Jesus is going to confront a contrary generation, and we have to kind of understand what's taken place before this confrontation so that when we see the confrontation, it makes sense. So here's a little bit of context of what's been covered so far in Matthew's gospel. If you're taking notes today, number one, so far, Jesus has fulfilled various messianic prophecies. I mean, he's descended from who Messiah was supposed to descend from. He was born where Messiah was to be born. He grew up where Messiah was to grow up. He ministered where Messiah was to minister, so on and so forth. But not only has Jesus fulfilled prophecy so far in Matthew's gospel, number two, Jesus has performed the special miracles that God the Father set aside for Messiah to perform when he came. When he came, he opened the eyes of the blind, he made the deaf hear, he made the lame walk, and he made the mute sing for joy. And these were things, as we've been learning in this series, that God the Father uh, decided not to do throughout all of Old Testament history. So that when Messiah came, he would be easily recognized because he would be the one and the only one doing these special miracles. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, these are the things we've seen him do. And thirdly, at this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has done many things that only God can do. He's demonstrated power over disease and power over nature and power over the demonic realm and power over sin and even power over death itself. Now, despite Jesus doing these things, despite all this evidence that supported his claim to be the Messiah, to be God in the flesh, to be the Savior of the world, Despite all this, the overwhelming response to Jesus so far in Matthew's gospel has been that of rejection. Jesus was looking for surrender. What he got was rejection. The Jews were looking for a military and political leader who would deliver them from Rome's oppression, and Jesus just didn't fit the bill. So in the words of the apostle John, though Jesus came to his own, his own received him not. So at this point, after giving many proofs and many confirmations about his identity over an 18-month period, but being met primarily with rejection, Jesus now begins to rebuke those who have been obstinate to the truth and have obstinately refused to believe despite the manifold evidence for doing so. So Jesus now begins to rebuke those who are contrary. And that's what we see in our text today. Where our text picks up, messengers from John the Baptist have just finished questioning Jesus and picking up in verse 7, here's what we read. As they, the messengers sent by John, went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. 
what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. All right, if you're taking notes today, the very first thing we see in this passage is what we're going to call the illumination. Because Jesus begins this section of Scripture uh, by illuminating for the people the true identity of John the Baptist. And Jesus does this by way of questions. Jesus asks them, guys, what made you travel out into the middle of nowhere to see and hear John preach? And this was really a fair question because where John was ministering was way off the beaten path out in the middle of nowhere. It was out in the woods, out in the wilderness. John ministered in the wilderness away from the hustle and bustle of life in the villages and cities. So Jesus says, what made you travel out into the middle of nowhere to see John? And now Jesus is going to have a little bit of fun with his audience. He, he asks basically, did you travel out in the wilderness to see the beautiful scenery? And this was a joke because the only scenery uh, out there in the wilderness were the ugly reeds that grew along the banks of the Jordan River. Jesus continues, well, if you didn't travel out to the wilderness to see the, the reeds along the river, then was it so you could get caught up on the latest fashion trends? This too is a joke because Jesus didn't, uh, because John the Baptist didn't wear fancy clothes like the kings and Roman governors of Jesus' day. Unlike them, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a simple leather belt, which was a very unusual choice of dress in Jesus' day. So Jesus says, well, it's not because of the beautiful scenery. It's not because you wanted to get caught up on the latest fashion trends from John, but there had to be a reason for why you inconvenienced yourself to travel a good distance out into the wilderness in the middle of nowhere. If it wasn't to admire the scenery, if it wasn't to get caught up in the latest fashion trends, then what was it for? And then Jesus answers his own questions. He says, you went out there because you had hoped that John was the prophesied prophet and herald who would announce to the nation that God's promised Messiah had finally arrived. Now, let me explain. After mankind messed up the good world that God originally created, God initiated a glorious plan of salvation. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see uh, the promise of a Savior repeated over and over and over through God's prophets. 
But after Malachi, the last of the prophets, uh, the prophetic voice went silent. The last of the prophets in the Old Testament, the prophetic voice went silent. And it was silent for some 400 years. Now, all during this time, the Jews longingly awaited a time when God's promised Savior would come, who was to be preceded by God's appointed herald, who, according to the prophets, would come in the spirit and the likeness of the prophet Elijah. Well, after 400 years of silence from heaven, the prophetic voice picks back up with John. And this is why, practically speaking, the entire nation traveled out into the middle of nowhere to hear what John had to say, because they were hoping that John was the prophesied herald who would announce the glorious news that the promised Savior of the world, the Messiah, had finally come. So Jesus says to them, this is what you went out into the wilderness to see. You went out there because of who you hoped John to be. And Jesus says, well, guess what? You were right. John is the one that Malachi prophesied about who would come and prepare you for the arrival of your Messiah. And just as Malachi foretold, he came in the spirit and the likeness of Elijah and that he wore the same clothes that Elijah wore, camel's hair, and that he ate the same diet that Elijah ate locusts, and that he ministered in the same area that Elijah ministered in along the Jordan River, and that uh, he preached the same message that Elijah preached, which was repent. So Jesus says, John, yes, he was a prophet, and not just any prophet. He was a prophet of prophets. Jesus calls him more than a prophet. But friends, this simply means that John was preeminent among the prophets, and preeminent because of the privileged message that John got to share. You see, all the other prophets from Moses all the way through Malachi came sharing this message, a Savior will come. But John had the great privilege of being the one and the only one who came with this message, the Savior has come. And because John and John alone got to do this, John was put in a league all of his own by Jesus. He was more than a prophet. He was a prophet uh, among prophets. He was preeminent among the prophets. So friends, that's how our passage begins with the illumination. In verses 7 to 15, Jesus illuminates for the people who John really was and the special role that John came to play in God's redemptive plan. But Jesus is setting them up because though John pointed them to Jesus, though when the crowds of people came out to John, John turned to them and said, look, and pointing to Jesus, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Did the people believe John? Some did, but by and large, the answer was no. The people didn't believe John. The people didn't believe Jesus. Though John matched the identity of the prophesied herald and that he did come in the spirit and likeness of Elijah, and though Jesus matched the identity of the prophesied Messiah, by and large, the people rejected both John and Jesus. They rejected both the herald of the king and the king himself. So now as we move into verses 16 and 17, Jesus is going to rebuke the people for their refusal to believe despite the evidence. And his rebuke comes in the form 
of an illustration. So that's what we see next. After the illumination comes, number two, the illustration. Jesus asks, to what shall I compare this generation? This generation that just stubbornly refuses to believe no matter what. Jesus says, well, I'll give you this illustration. It's like children. This generation is like children sitting in the marketplace Calling to their playmates, we played a flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Now, if this makes no sense to you, don't worry about it. This was something that was cultural in a culture on another side of the world 2,000 years ago. So let me me explain what Jesus is saying here. Um, In Jesus' day, there were no Walmarts or Costcos or Stop and Shops or Aldis. When you needed food to buy or you needed to sell the food that you grew on your farm, uh, you went off to what we would call today the local farmer's market, which according to Jewish tradition was held on the second and fifth day of each week. And when you came to market, whether to buy or to sell, your kids came with you. And and kids just absolutely loved going to the market because uh, once they did whatever chores their parents needed them to do, they got to play for hours on end with all of their friends. Now, in the time of Christ, there were two great social affairs, weddings and funerals. So naturally, the children came up with games based off of these two primary social affairs. For the wedding game, uh, some of the kids would play imaginary flutes, making flute noises with their mouths. And when the flute was played, the other kids were supposed to dance, just as guests would do at a wedding. Conversely, for the funeral game, some of the kids would sing a dirge, which is a tribute to the deceased, like the one David sang at King Saul's funeral. And when the dirge was sung, all the other kids were supposed to mourn like the guests would do at a funeral. But there were always at least a few spoiled, bratty children who were just contrary and who didn't want to go along no matter which game was being played. If the kids said, let's play wedding, the brats would say, no, let's play funeral. If the kids agreed and said, all right, well, let's play funeral then, the brats would say, no, I don't want to play funeral anymore. I want to play wedding. You see, no matter what was proposed, they were just contrary, just as some kids are today. And Jesus says, that's the illustration of what this generation is like. You guys are contrary. No matter what evidence is given, no matter how many proofs are shared, it doesn't matter. You just dig your heels in and stick to your original position, hellbound to be contrary no matter what. So that's the illustration. And now that you've seen the illustration, let's note the third and final thing we see in our text, which we're going to call the incrimination. The incrimination. This is uh, Jesus' argument that he makes uh, for his claim that they are guilty of the charge of being contrary. And we see the incrimination in verses 18 to 19. Jesus says, here's the evidence for my charge that you are contrary. And then he says, John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. Conversely, though, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. All right, let's break this down. John's ministry might be compared to a funeral, much more so than to a wedding. Funerals are somber occasions, are they not? And John's ministry had a somber note to it. From Matthew 9, we learn that he was always fasting and denying himself the normal comforts of life. He lived outdoors, he didn't wear fancy or comfortable clothing, and he ate a very restrictive diet. And he was very, very serious. So John's ministry just had this somber, funeral-like tone to it. On the other hand, Jesus' ministry might be compared not to a funeral, but to a wedding. Weddings are celebratory, a perfect time for feasting and drinking, which is why Jesus was noted for both. When the disciples of John asked Jesus why he and his disciples didn't fast like them or fast like the Pharisees, Jesus basically says, don't you understand that fasting is for times of mourning? And since the Savior of the world that God promised to send has finally come, now's not the right time to be mourning. Now's the time to be celebrating. So friends, in sum, John denied and Jesus indulged. Because John denied, people labeled him demon-possessed. And because Jesus indulged, people labeled him a drunkard and a glutton. You see, they were contrary no matter what. So they rejected John for denying and rejected Jesus for indulging so they would neither repent with John nor celebrate with Jesus. They were just contrary no matter what. So friends, to sum up our text, we covered a lot. Let me sum it up for you. Here's the recap. Number one, we covered the illumination, uh, what Jesus said about who John really was. We covered, number two, the illustration uh, of what the people were really like. And now, thirdly and finally, we covered uh, the incrimination, Jesus's charge against the people. And his charge, one more time, is this. You are a contrary generation. A contrary generation generation. But now that we've covered our text, we need to make practical application to our lives today because how many of you understand that the first century generation in Palestine was not the only contrary generation to ever have lived? Hello? I think a text like this calls on us to do some self-evaluation, especially for those who are considering becoming disciples of Jesus but haven't yet done so. Clearly, the protagonist in our text is Jesus' contrary generation, so we'll want to make sure that their story is not our own, right? Now, here's the deal. Some of you have been coming for months, maybe even for years, or maybe tuning in online for months, or maybe even years, yet you've yet to confess Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. Now, we are so glad that you're coming, if that's you. We're so glad that you're tuned in online, if that's you. We really are. But let me be clear in saying that our goal here at New Day is not continued attendance. 
our goal is that every person who hears the preaching of God's word and hears the gospel would submit to it, appointing Jesus Lord of their life and inviting him to be their savior. And friends, that's what we want for you because the reality is you will never become a citizen in the eternal kingdom of Christ by continuing to attend church. You only become a citizen in the eternal kingdom of Christ by asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins and making him Lord of your life. Now, some of you, again, have not yet done this. And the question begs, why? And if I was to literally ask you out loud, why? Why haven't you received Jesus as Lord and Savior yet? You might say, well, you know, I just need a little more proof. I mean, I've been coming for years, but I just need a little more proof. I just need a little more information. I just need to see a little more evidence. And if only I could get a little more info, a little more proof, a little more evidence, you know, then I would, I would probably go ahead and make him Lord and Savior. But if that's you today and you're saying, I just need a little more proof, I have to ask you because I love you, do you really? Do you really? Or are you just avoiding the responsibilities that would come upon you should you choose to make Jesus Lord? I think a lot of times we lie to ourselves. Oh, oh, the reason, I just need more evidence. I just need more proof. I, I just need a little more information. And I think sometimes that's a lie. Not all the time. Sometimes that's genuine. But a lot of times it's not genuine. A lot of times we're hiding behind that excuse because we don't want to become morally responsible to God. And we don't want our life to change. Now, hey, my heart goes out to you. I understand that change can be scary, but I got to ask you this. Is it really more scary than the thought of you paying the penalty for sin yourself versus letting Jesus pay the penalty for sin for you? If you've never heard the gospel today, it's really simple. The Bible teaches that we've all sinned. And it says that the punishment for sin is death. Because of sin, we die physically. And apart from faith in Jesus, we will one day suffer eternally. That's the bad news. But the good news is this. Because God loves us, he has provided a way by which the penalty for sin can be paid, yet we go free. And that's where Jesus comes into play. At Christmas time, we especially remember the reality that Jesus was born. But friends, let's remember this. Jesus was born into the world to die. And to not just die any death, he was born into the world to die a death on a cross, a cruel Roman cross, which was him taking the punishment for sin that you and I deserved upon himself. And he did this because in this way, Jesus satisfied God's sense of justice because the penalty for sin was paid. But with the penalty for sin being paid, you and I get to go free. But friends, if we don't want to accept Jesus paying the penalty for sin for us, then there's no other option than to pay the penalty for sin ourselves. And that's what hell's for. It's for people who want to pay the penalty for sin for themselves versus letting Jesus pay the penalty for sin for them. So I know you're telling yourself, I need more proof, I need more evidence, I just need a little more info. But friends, here's the reality of the situation. 
God has already provided all the evidence you and I need to believe on Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, this is not in your notes, but I want to talk to you about four evidences that God has provided for us as the basis for our belief. Number one, God has provided the evidence of fulfilled prophecy. We have seen Jesus just in the first 11 chapters of Matthew fulfill one prophecy after another. In his life in total, Jesus fulfilled some 300 plus prophecies. Now let me talk to you about the odds of one person fulfilling even eight of those 300 prophecies. A mathematics and astronomy professor did the math and he concluded that the odds of someone fulfilling just eight of the 300 prophecies would be one in 100 quadrillion. I realize that's a number that's beyond our comprehension, so let me try to put it to you in a way we can better understand. Imagine filling the entire state of Florida 10 feet deep with silver dollars, only one of which is marked with a red X. And imagine a blindfolded person walking around the state with one chance to pick up the one silver dollar marked with a red X. Their chance of doing so would be one in 100 quadrillion. And these are the odds for any one person fulfilling just eight of the messianic prophecies. And again, Jesus fulfilled over 300. So friends, what I'm saying is God has given us the evidence of fulfilled prophecy. Number two, God's given us the evidence of miracles of healing. Remember earlier I said that God had denied himself performing certain miracles in the Old Testament. We have no record in the Old Testament of God opening the eyes of the blind, making the lame walk, making the deaf hear, or making the mute sing for joy. Yet this is exactly what we see an explosion of when Jesus comes on the scene. And friends, that was God giving us the evidence of miracles of healing. God didn't want us to be confused concerning the identity of the Savior of the world. So he made it very clear. And 700 years before Jesus was even born, he inspired uh, the prophet Isaiah to foretell that when Messiah came, then the eyes of the blind would be opened, the lame would walk, the deaf would hear, the mute would sing for joy. And friends, that's exactly what we see in Jesus. So that's the second evidence, the evidence of miracles of healing. Thirdly, God has given us the evidence of divine power. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he was doing things that only God can do, right? I mean, can man speak to a storm and say, be calm, and the storm obeys? Yet this is the very thing that Jesus did on the Sea of Galilee. Can man have total dominion over the demonic realm? Well, friends, this is the very thing Jesus did. He commanded the demons, and they obeyed. Does man have power over life and death? Yet throughout Jesus' ministry, he raised one person after another after another from the dead, proving his power even over death. Friends, that was God giving us the evidence of divine power. He didn't want us to be confused who Jesus was, so he gave us that third evidence. Fourthly and finally, God has given us the evidence of changed lives. And I love that God has given us this fourth evidence because a lot of critics of the Christian faith, a lot of people looking to avoid the moral responsibilities that would come on them if they accepted the truth, love to point at the Bible and go, 
well, I just don't believe the Bible. I don't believe in the Bible, so fulfilled prophecies mean nothing to me. The miracles of healing, that evidence, that means nothing to me. Nor does the evidence of divine power, because all that comes from the Bible. So I don't believe. And they just dig their heels in, and they're contrary. Well, that's why God gave us a fourth evidence, so that there'd be no way of getting around it. He gave us the fourth evidence, the evidence of changed lives. Oh, you can point to the Bible and criticize all you want and find fault with that. You know what's a lot harder to criticize? The wake of changed lives that follow Jesus everywhere he goes. You've been watching video testimonies of the changed lives every week for the past five, six weeks now. Just hearing how God has changed people's lives. And friends, that's what happens. Every time someone uh, receives Jesus as Lord and Savior, there is a change so great of a change, as we'll learn in one of the first uh, couple sermons of the new year, uh, a, a change that's so great that it can only be described as this person's a new creation. And you've got to explain that. What accounts for that? What accounts for that? So friends, God has given us this evidence. And the reality is, it is all the evidence that anyone needs to believe on Jesus as Lord and Savior. You don't need more evidence. And friends, I would encourage you to make today the day that you choose to believe on Jesus as Lord and Savior. Do you really need more evidence that Jesus was sent from God as the Savior of the world? Or is it that you're just a member of a contrary generation? just as was the case for the people in the first century. Is the issue that you don't have sufficient reason to believe, or is the issue that you've just firmly decided in your heart to be contrary to the truth, no matter what the evidence might show you about Jesus? Is the issue that you don't have all the info you need, or is the issue that you don't want to let control of your life be relinquished to someone else, not even God? Is the issue that you don't have enough reason to believe, or is the issue that you're afraid to turn away from the sin that you love so much? Finally, is the issue with God. God hasn't provided me with enough reason to believe. Or is the issue with you? You've been contrary and are adamant about being contrary, regardless of what God may or may not provide. Friends, in Jesus' day, oh, some of you know, Oh, if only I saw a miracle. Then they'd see a miracle. Jesus would open the eyes of the blind. Oh, well, that's not enough for me to believe. I just, I need to see him to do something else. So then he made the lame man walk. Well, oh, if only I just saw, you know, a little more. So then he made the deaf man hear. Oh, that's still not good enough either. I just need to see something. So now he makes the mute sing for joy. Oh, well, that's not enough for me either. So Jesus says, fine, let me uh, show you my dominion over nature. And he speaks to a storm, and the storm is calm. Oh, that's not enough for me. Jesus says, fine, let me show you my dominion uh, over disease. And he just healed uh, disease after disease after disease. Some people say, oh, that's not enough for me. So he says, fine, let me move beyond that and show you my power over sin. And that you may believe that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, pick up your mat and walk. And he heals a, a, a man who is paralyzed to prove he had power over sin. And some people say, oh, that's great, but if I only had a little more. And Jesus says, good grief, what do you want? How about I show you my power over life and death itself? And he raises people from the dead. And you know what? I mean, that's the proof of all proofs, is it not? And some people say, well, I just think I still need more info. And we hear about people like that. And we see the silly things that people did back then. And we kind of judge them. 
But friends, in judging them, are we not judging ourselves? Because don't many of us do this, the very same thing. I need more proof. I need more evidence. I just need a little more info. On the authority of God's word, no, you do not. God has given you all you need. Stop wasting your time. Stop chancing your, your life and your eternity by not getting right with God. Friends, don't go one more day making that mistake. Here is the application of the entire sermon in three words. It's coming on the screen. Stop being contrary. I believe that is God's message to us today through this text. Stop being contrary. Friends, when you're contrary, you are contrary to your own detriment. So stop. You see, when you cross the line of faith, God has forgiveness of sins for you and for me. When I stepped across that line of faith, I too, I received forgiveness of my sins. And friends, when you step across that line of faith, you also will receive forgiveness of sins. And let me tell you, we're talking about Christmas season, right? Christmas season is marked by presence, right? Well, let me tell you the presence God has for those whose sins are forgiven. God has joy for such a person. God has peace for such a person. God has a plan for such a person. God has a purpose for such a person. And God has a kingdom for such a person to live in forever under the righteous rule of Jesus. The great king that God promised to send into the world who came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross as a substitute for us. And through faith in him, we get to live in the kingdom that God appointed him to rule over forever. And friends, there is no greater gift than that to receive this Christmas. Friends, I've been uh, terribly sick this past week. I'm on the recovery end, praise the Lord. But I prayed before service. I said, God, I'm just going to leave it all out on the table. I'm giving it my all. If I relapse and fall back into sickness, it is what it is. I am giving it my everything today. And that's what I've done here and now. And friends, now it, the responsibility, it shifts for me and it shifts to you. It's decision time. So let's pray. Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? Not out loud, but in your heart. If you want to stop being contrary and you want to surrender to the Lordship of Christ and you want to ask him to be your savior, say this in your heart to God. Heavenly Father, today I thank you for the evidence to believe. I know you require faith, but I'm so glad it's not uh, a blind faith. It's a faith that's rooted in evidence. God, thank you for the testimony. God, on the testimony and the evidence of fulfilled prophecy. God, on the evidence of miracles of healing. God, based on the evidence of divine power. And based on the evidence of changed lives. Today, I ask Jesus to be my Savior. I believe on him as the Savior, the Messiah, the one John said was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God, today I'm asking Jesus to take away my sin. God, I know that sin deserves to be punished. God, I ask that you would count the punishment that Jesus received on cross as the punishment for my sin. God, forgive me. I'm making Jesus my Savior. 
But God, today, more than asking him to be my Savior, I am appointing him Lord of my life, the ruler, the king that he is. And God, I understand kings get to give commands, and the servants of the king are to obey the commands. And God, that's where I'm at today. I want to surrender to the lordship of Christ. The uh, moral responsibility that I've been avoiding by making all kinds of excuses and being contrary no matter what, uh, God, I'm putting those to the side, the excuses to the side, and now I'm ready to surrender to the leadership of Jesus over my life. And God, I thank you for the wonderful promise in Scripture that those who make Jesus Lord and Savior become citizens of the eternal kingdom that you've appointed Jesus to rule over forever. God, thank you for forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the gift of citizenship in Jesus' eternal kingdom this Christmas. I'm so thankful. What a gift. God, everything from here is kind of downhill this Christmas. I started with the best gift of all. What could be better than this? God, I'm so thankful. And I thank you for all the accompanying gifts that come with salvation and with citizenship, the joy, the peace, the purpose, and the plan that you now have for my life. God, just as you had a wonderful plan for John and your redemptive plan on this earth, God, I pray that now uh, you would reveal to me uh, your plan for me. I want to be a part of your redemptive plan. I want to use my life to help people come to know you. So use me, I pray. I thank you for my salvation, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. If you've been blessed by what you heard, you can give a one-time or reoccurring gift at newdaychurch.cc forward slash giving or text any amount on your smartphone right now to 84321. We would love to connect with you even more. So be sure to like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. And don't forget to find us on the Church Center app for more information about all things New Day. May God bless you and we hope to see you again soon.